You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. Singer-songwriter Toby Mack recently went through one of the most trying seasons of his life. The father of five tragically lost his 21-year-old son, Truett, in the fall of 2019. Shortly after, as we know, the pandemic hit, halting live events and threatening his livelihood. Then, in September 2020, Toby's sister passed away, leaving him to wonder how much more he could take. He admitted that during this season, the songs that poured out of him were mostly sad and and naturally sad. He began to pray and ask God to give him something to hold on to in the middle of his darkness. Turning to the Psalms for hope, he inadvertently stumbled upon inspiration for his next song, of course, and found a personal lifeline. It came from Psalms 98, 1 and 2, from the paraphrased version of the Bible called The Message. It says this, sing to God a brand new song. He's made a world of wonders. He rolled up his sleeves. He set things right. God made history with salvation. He showed the world what he could do. Toby said, I read that God is rolling up his sleeves. What beautiful imagery. The picture turned me from just having hope to yelling it from the rooftops. The God of all creation is rolling up his sleeves on your behalf, on our behalf. What a promise. We are not forgotten, not at all. He penned the chorus to his song, Help is on the Way, and it goes like this. It may be midnight or midday. It's never early, never late. He's gonna stand by what he claimed I've lived enough life to say, help is on the way. This story and these lyrics lead us right into Exodus chapter one and chapter two. God is rolling up his sleeves and help is on the way for the Israelites. So let me outline for you Exodus one and two with five words. And these five words happen to all just start with the letter M. And it is misery, not Missouri, right? Misery, midwives, Moses, murder, and Midian. Say these with me. Misery, midwives, Moses, murder, and Midian. We got a lot of ground to cover today, so let's get to it. Exodus 1 and verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, this is the Egyptians, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Look at verse 10. He says, come, let us deal shrewdly with them. And note this, lest they, 
multiply. I want you to note this word multiply as we continue to read through it. And if war breaks out, they join in our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Now, what's interesting is that there's no history that would tell us that the children of Israel were thinking about going and joining another army to come overtake the Egyptians. What is happening in his Pharaoh and his dictatorship is beginning to get paranoid about these group, this group of people that are growing bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger. And so he's like, what if they leave our country and they go join an army and they come back? We're toast, right? So fear is beginning to break out in Pharaoh's heart. And so he says, we've got to deal shrewdly with them unless they multiply. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities in Pithom and Ramses. And then it says in verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they what? What did verse 10 say? He was oppressing them so that they wouldn't multiply. But Moses says, but the more that he the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Moses is using a Hebrew pun here to show that the joke is on Pharaoh, that he's trying to oppress them so they don't multiply, but in their oppression, God is actually using it to multiply them. So he's, he's using this word multiply in different ways to sort of say, good try, Pharaoh, better luck next time. It didn't work. They're getting more and more strong and more and more people. But because of that, it gets worse and worse for the children of Israel, for the Hebrews here. So they ruthlessly, verse 13, made the people work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So it doesn't get better for them. Even in God being true to his promise that he was making a great nation out of them, even as they're multiplying and he, God is being true to his word, suffering is getting more and more difficult for them. Hardship, is, it's becoming harder and harder for them. The dictator is, is making it worse and worse for them. So that's the misery of the... Exodus 8, Exodus 1, 8 through 14. Then we come to the midwives in verse 15. So plan A didn't work for Pharaoh. And so he has a plan B. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whose name was Shipra and the other Pua. And he says this to them. In verse 16, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill them, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. So he gets these two midwives and these midwives were probably over a group of midwives. They would be the directors or the leaders of this midwife group. And he says, when you go out to the Hebrew ladies and they're giving birth, if it's a boy, I want you to kill it. I want you to abort it, right? I want you to kill that, murder that baby if it's a boy as soon as it comes out. And if it's a girl, I want you to keep it. And the reason was they were trying to get rid of the men so that they could keep the girls, they would keep them as slaves. And then when they would get old enough to marry them, Egyptian men would marry them and the seed of the Egyptians would grow, but not the seed of the Israelites. 
So this was a strategic plan to, to get rid of the children of Israel, to get rid of God's seed that he was going to work through to bring the savior of the world. Satan is at work here. But look, listen to how the midwives respond in verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. These women feared God and did not fear the king of Egypt. They were not prepared to act contrary to their conscience, no matter what political pressure they came under. They took courage and obeyed God over the superpower of their day. They, they were willing to do what was right in the sight of the Lord, even if it meant their lives. And so Pharaoh hears about this and he calls them in and he says, I want you to tell me what's going on, right? I told you to kill the baby boys, but I still see baby boys around the city, right? I still see them around. What is going on? And I love the response of the midwives in verse 19. They said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. I love it. It's like, they're hardy ladies, man. By the time we get there, boop, it's out, you know, and we can't do anything about it. So like, I love the, 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 the term vigorous women, right? That they were hardy women. That's, that, we'll just, these, they're vigorous women. I, I just, I love that terminology that they choose to use. That by the time they get there, the baby's already out and they're not gonna kill the baby. So listen to God's blessings on the midwives because they chose to fear God rather than man. Verse 20, so God dealt with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew. God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So although these two midwives, whose names are only recorded here in all of history, God noticed that they feared God above man and God blessed them because of that. It's interesting because in, as Moses is writing Exodus 1 and 2, he doesn't list the name of his mom, as we'll see in a minute. He doesn't list the name of his dad. He doesn't list the name of Pharaoh's daughter. He doesn't list, 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 list even Pharaoh's name. Because Pharaoh would be like saying president or king. We don't even know the name of the Pharaoh at that time. We can work it down through history, but we really don't even know the name. The only names that he chooses to list as he's telling this narrative is these two midwives. Because what he's wanting us to see is the courage that they took in the face of evil. And that they were willing to say, I'm going to fear God over man. And if today you are taking courage in the face of evil, I would encourage you, nobody in the world may know, but God notices and God will bless you for your courage. Then in verse 22, it says, then Pharaoh commanded all of his people. So when the midwives things didn't work out and they're too hardy of women and they're producing babies too quickly, he 
returns it to all the people. So he calls on national, a national uh, mandate here. And he says, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So he says, now, this is not just for the midwives. Now I'm calling on the whole nation. If you see an Israelite boy, a Hebrew boy, wandering around or carried in a mother's arms, you take it out of the mother's arms, you take that baby and you throw him in the Nile River. You drown them. This is how serious it has gotten. And can you imagine the fear that these moms would have as they were giving birth to their baby? Is it gonna be a boy? Is it gonna be a girl? And then when they would have a boy, just that, that, that tension that would be in their hearts to know that they, they've gotta keep them quiet and hide them. You can, you can feel the tension in the text. No, no matter where you go, you would have to watch out because if it was a boy and it was, it was a Hebrew, it was an Israelite, they could be immediately taken and thrown into the Nile River. And so this is the midwives of our outline. Then, as all of this does, it sets us up for chapter two, which is where we meet Moses. It says, now a man from the house of Levi went in and took his wife, uh, uh, his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Who's the author of the book of Exodus? Moses. I love that Moses says he is a fine child, right? Isn't that funny that he would use the term fine there? That as his mom is giving birth to him and she looks at him, she's like, this child is fine. Now, he's not doing that because Moses is conceited or prideful. He's actually doing this very intentionally because this word fine is not the only place that we find this word in Scripture. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, as you find God creating the world and everything in it, the six days of creation, what does God say as he finishes each day of creation? Behold, it was good. God was saying it was good because he is saying, I've made this for a purpose. That I've made this world for a purpose, for, for my glory, right? And so I have a purpose. So it is good because it is made for me. And so when Moses uses the term, the mother saw that he was a fine child, it is the same word that he used when God looked at creation and said it was good. Why would he use the same word? Because what he is saying is this baby was born with a purpose, that he was going to bring glory to God through his life. Just like creation brought glory to God, so Moses' life would bring glory to God. So he's a fine child. And then verse three, it says this, when she could hide him no longer. If you've ever had a three-month-old, you know there gets that moment where you just can't hide, right? And they get loud, they're crying when they're hungry, right? Like it, you try to keep a three-month-old baby quiet. It ain't happening. It's just a part of who they are, right? And so the mother's like, I can't keep him quiet anymore. They're gonna hear about it. And so this is what, what Moses' mom does. She took him and put him in a basket, made of bulrushes and daubed it with pitman and pitch. And she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. 
So what she does is she takes Moses and she builds this basket, puts him in it and puts it on the edge of the Nile River, maybe even an outworking of the Nile River in, in the place of these reeds. Now I want you to notice this word basket. This word basket is used only one other time in scripture. And the other time that is used in scripture is in Genesis chapter six through chapter nine, where you find the story of Noah and the what? Ark, right? The same word that is used for Noah and the ark is the word that Moses chooses to use here for basket. So it's as if Moses is trying to tie these two things together. Now, the Hebrews and the Israelites, who, the Jewish people who would read this, they would immediately make the connection. Both, Moah and, both Noah and Moses escaped the waters of judgment in an ark. Moses was in a big ark. Moses was in a small ark. And the readers of this text would make the connection that God was using Noah to be a deliverer as he rescued him from the waters of judgment in the flood. And he's also going to use Moses to be a deliverer as he uses this basket to rescue him from the death of the Nile River. It would seem as if God is taking a place where death happens and turns it into life and salvation. Let me say that again. It would seem as if God is taking a place where death happens and he's turning it into life and salvation. Maybe there is something coming where that same thing will happen again. So they put him in a basket and he is in this basket and it says in verse four that his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Can you imagine the turmoil in this sister's heart? As Moses' sister would stand there and watch her little baby brother in this basket, knowing that probably his end would be that they would find him and they would just in front of her face, throw him into the Nile River to drown. Can you imagine the turmoil that would be in her heart? But look at what happens. What happens, it just sort of randomly happens in verse five. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she sees this basket, Pharaoh's daughter in the reeds. And the sister notices, Moses' sister notices that she sees the basket. And so she runs up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, shall I go and call a nurse for the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? So she seizes the moment and runs up to Pharaoh's daughter and says, listen, I can find somebody who will take care of this baby boy. And the, the, the Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, go get somebody to come take care of him. Well, who do you think the sister goes to? She goes and gets mom. And mom comes back and is like, I would be happy to take care of this baby boy. But I love verse nine because it says this, and Pharaoh's daughter says to Moses' mom, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. 
Every mom in the room is thinking, how can I get this deal worked out, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, where's my Nile River at that I can put my baby in? And then I can come back and be like, hey, I can take care of it for money, you know? Like, and then you get to raise your child and get paid for it as well. Like, wouldn't that be awesome? I love it. I love how God is working. Just so happened that Pharaoh's daughter, it just so happened that, that his sister would come. It just so happened that Pharaoh's daughter would say, yeah, I want to keep this baby alive. And I want you not knowing that she's giving her, this baby to his mother. God is, God is at work. And it said when the child then, so, so Moses' mom takes him home and nurses him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And it's interesting, Pharaoh's daughter names Moses and she named him Moses, she said, because I drew him out of the water. Isn't it amazing that God would use Pharaoh's daughter to name Moses, Moses, which means draw out? knowing that God was going to use Moses to draw the people out of slavery? Isn't it God to take something that is evil and someone who is evil and to turn it for good? This is an amazing story of what God is doing and how God is working. And says in verse 11, then we move to murder. One day when Moses had grown up, now, just to give you a timeline, where are we at in Moses' life? Is he a teenager? Where is he at? What we know is that he probably spent till about the age of 10 with his mom and dad, right? That was probably how long Moses was there. And when he's with his mom, what do you think his mom and dad were teaching him about? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, right? In those early years, his formative years, Moses is being poured into by his mom and dad about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then they bring Moses to Pharaoh's daughter, and Moses, for the next 30 years, lives in Pharaoh's house. So he's educated by the Egyptians. He, everything that Pharaoh's daughter's sons would have, Moses has in this moment. So when it says one day when Moses had grown up, we're probably looking about the age of 40 right now in Moses' life. So he's a 40-year-old he's a man. And he went out to his people, his people being the Hebrews, being the children of Israel, and he looked on their burdens. Now we read that and think he just sort of blew by. He was riding his chariot, right? And he goes flying by and he sees them being mistreated. But the word looked there, is, it means that this was something that he was contemplating. This was months, maybe even years of watching the children of Israel get mistreated year after year after year. So this was building in his life. This wasn't one off, one off moment that he went by. This was something that was working in his heart and life. And it says in verse 12, when he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, he looked this way and that way and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Moses loses his temper. And it's interesting this word struck down because it, it doesn't really mean murder. Like there's a different word in the Hebrew language that you use for murder. This struck down is that he, he just hit them. It'd be like beating somebody up. 
So the only way that we know he killed them is that he hid them in the sand, which would tell us that he killed them. But I think Moses is trying to help us understand maybe his intention wasn't. He had just got angry in the moment as he watched the Israelites and his intention, his intentions weren't to kill the Egyptians, but as he struck him, he did kill him and he buried them in his sand, in the sand. In this moment, we see that Moses fails in two ways. Not just that he killed the Egyptian, but he also failed in the fact that he was trying to do God's work in his own strength. That he was doing it in his timetable, not in God's timetable. God wasn't ready for him to be a deliverer yet, but he was ready to deliver the people of Israel. He was ready to deliver the Hebrews out of their slavery. And, and he was moving ahead of God. And when you move ahead of God, even in like Moses, a man that God, when we move ahead of God, oftentimes we move into sin. Because we're trying to do it in our own strength. We're trying to do it in our own power. And it becomes all about us and not about God. And so Moses makes a horrible decision and he kills this Egyptian. Well, he comes back the next day and he sees two Israelites fighting with each other. And he comes to them and he says to them, what, what are you guys doing? Like, you know, I, I get Egyptians mistreating you, but why are you guys mistreating each other? And they reply to him and say, are you going to do the same thing you did to the Egyptian, to us? So the word got out. The word was on the street that Moses was a murderer. The word I was out on the street that Moses was one of those guys that you don't want to mess with, right? Because he's going to strike you down and bury you in the sand if you're mistreating people. And so when Moses hears this, and then it gets into the ear of Pharaoh. Pharaoh is ready to kill Moses. And so the Bible says that Moses then flees to Midian. And this is the last part of the section of Exodus 2. He goes to Midian. Midian was outside of the reach of the Egyptians. Midianites were nomads, so they were just wandering in the wilderness. And as he runs away for his life from Pharaoh, and even from the people that he desired to lead, as he runs away from them, he ends up at a well. And this well uh, was a place where life happened because it was water. And so the Bible says that he went to the well and he, he hung out around the well. Well, one day, seven daughters of the priest of Midian come to this well to get water for themselves as well as water their flock. And when they come, there's some shepherds there who begin to bully them. And it's interesting because Moses steps in again, just like he did with the Egyptian and the Israelites, but he's learned his lesson now. And so Moses steps in again to defend those who are being oppressed, these seven ladies, and he stands up for them, but he doesn't kill anybody and it works out good. The shepherds leave, he feeds the, the, the he, he waters the, 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 the flock and he gives water to the daughters as well. 
These daughters go back home to their, their dad, who's a priest in Midian, and they say, hey, we're back. And he's like, what are you being, why are you back so soon? Usually it takes you a lot longer. And they're like, well, there was this guy there who stood up for us, got us water, also got water for the flock as well. And the dad's like, why didn't you bring him home with you, right? Like, we can have dinner with this guy. Let's see who he is. So they go back and they get Moses. And Moses comes and has dinner with this family. And God in his graciousness and kindness would allow Moses to marry one of these ladies. And he gets married and God blesses him with two sons in Midian. This is God showing Moses grace. That he's using this time in Midian to mold God, mold Moses into what he desired for him to be. And it's interesting because Moses names his first son Gershom, for he said this, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now remember in Bible times when they named somebody, it just wasn't like, hey, I like the name Steve, so I named my kid Steve. They named people because of what was going on in their life. And so when he names his son, this Gershom, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. His mind is back with his people in Israel. He is saying, this is not, I don't belong in Midian. I belong back with my people in Egypt as a deliverer. So he's showing us that his heart is still for the children of Israel. His, his heart is still there. You remember that when we are studying a narrative, we're not just looking at the setting that's going on. We're not just looking at the plot or even the characters. When we look and, and we study a narrative in scripture, we're looking for how we can see God in the narrative. Because the main character of all of scripture, whether it's narrative or law or it's poetry, all throughout scripture, the main character of the story of the Bible is God. And so when we study Exodus chapter one and chapter two, we have to ask ourselves, what do we see about God in this story? And here's what we see about God in this story. We see the providence of God. We see the providence of God. Now we don't use this word often, so let me define this word as it relates to God. What does the providence of God mean? It means the act of purposely providing for or sustaining and governing the world. This is the providence of God, that God is purposefully working in the world. That this is not just a random thing that's happening, that's sort of like you look back and say, wow, that was a coincidence. Boy, how did that all, that must've just been lucky that Pharaoh's daughter was in the water at the same time, right? It, that, this is the providence. This is God acting purposefully, providing for and sustaining, sustaining and governing the world. One of my favorite definitions of providence comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith that they wrote in 1646 that defines the providence of God in this way. I like it. It's rich theologically and it just speaks to the heart of the providence of God. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold 
direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things. From the greatest events to the least, by his most wise and and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And we all said, amen, right? Like that is a thick definition of the providence of God. He's saying that God is governing all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise, and I love that he uses holy providence. Providence. What is he talking about? A set-apart providence. Something that we can't even wrap our minds around. We see the providence of God in the story of Exodus 1 and 2 in the children of Israel's misery and how God was using their misery to multiply their seed. We see the providence of God in the midwives and that they were willing to take courage of a superpower and to stand up to it and say, we're not gonna go against our conscience. We're gonna trust God and we're gonna do what he has told us to do and we're gonna fear him rather than fear man. We see the providence of God in the life of, and the birth of Moses. I mean, you can't help read Exodus 1 through 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 and not see the providence of God. That, that he would happen, the mom would happen to build this basket that tied us to the ark. That the, the, the mom would happen to put the baby in the river right where Pharaoh's daughter would come and be happened to be bathing. And that Pharaoh's daughter would happen to bump into the basket and would happen to show pity. And that it would happen to be that, that the sister would run up there and say, I know somebody who can take care of the baby. And it would happen to be his mom and that she would get paid to raise her, her child. And that that Pharaoh's daughter would happen to name him Moses, which means he's drawn him out. This is the providence of God, that God was working in all of these situations to bring about his glory. We see the providence of God in in Moses' murder, that God knew Moses needed time to mature his faith and to trust God more than himself. And so this murder slowed the process down. It didn't stop the plan of God. God was going to use Moses, but it slowed it down so that Moses could develop his character and who God wanted him to be as he would lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. We see the providence of God in Midian and that God doesn't waste any time even when it's the result of your own sin, God shows Moses grace and gives him a wife and gives him two kids and gives him a job as a shepherd and provides for him. This is the providence of God. So why does the providence of God matter in your life? The providence of God matters in your life because God doesn't waste anything. As you look at your story that God has written in your life, there's not one part of your story that God has wasted. That it is all his providence at work in your life. There's there's not one part that he looks at and says, you know what, I can't do something with that. 
If God could use an evil king like Pharaoh and an evil daughter like his daughter to to use to, to bring about Moses and the deliverance of God's people, God can use even your past that you look at and say, I just, I don't know what God was doing in that time. I know I was sinning and I was running from God, but God could even use that to speak and to to bring glory to him. It's why just a few chapters earlier, Joseph would say in Genesis 50 and verse 20 to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You thought you were doing something really bad, like multiplying the oppression, but in reality, God was using it for good. That's the providence of God. It's why in Romans chapter eight, in verse 28, Moses would say, or Paul would say that God works everything together for his good. There's not one piece of our story that God can't redeem, that God can't use. This is the the providence of God, that God is working on purpose in and through your life. I believe that it is not coincidence or luck that you are here today, but it is the providence of God that you are sitting in this room. It is the providence of God that you are watching online today. This is not just some random thing that happened and all of a sudden we ended up in this room together. This is God working our stories together so that we would be here in this moment. And I would say this, the providence of God has led you to this moment for some of you to say yes to Jesus Christ. The Bible says today is the day of your salvation. It's not luck. It's not coincidence that you're here. It's the providence of God. He is purposefully working in your life and led you to this moment. He is purposefully working in your life that has led you to online today and join us online. And today is the day of your salvation. And so I would invite you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, to repent of your sins. And as we look at the book of Exodus and see how God worked and how God redeemed and used even evil to, to bring about his glory, God can, re- if you repent of your sins, God will redeem you and rescue you and he will change your story And so I would encourage you to say yes today. And it's the providence of God that if you have said yes to Jesus today, that you're hearing this message because maybe you begin to doubt God. And you begin, like I would assume the children of Israel probably felt, like where's God? Hundreds of years, 80 years in slavery. We thought our guy had come and then he makes makes a bonehead mistake and has to go for 40 years away. And maybe you're beginning to doubt the providence of God in your life. And today, can I encourage you, trust God, trust his providence, that every part of your story that he is writing, he is writing it with purpose. It's not by mistake. He's at work in your heart and life. It's interesting because the last three verses of Exodus chapter two, it's as if Moses steps back from his story for a minute And he reminds us of the bigger narrative that is going on. And he says this in verse 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So those many days 
the king of Egypt died. Again, we know Moses was 40 years old when he killed the Egyptian and he spent 40 years in the wilderness. So those day, many days are probably the 40, day, 40 years that he was in the Midian. And it says, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. What's interesting about these terms that I've highlighted is these two terms, groaned and cried out for help, are synonyms of each other. So as Moses is writing this letter, as Moses is writing this narrative, he is tying these two words together. He's, he's basically saying these two things go together. I'm just using different language for these words. So this is this idea of helplessness and they cried out for help. But then he uses a different term here where he says they cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Here's how one commentator expounds on this. He says, where time brought no relief, that's this, they groaned, and political change brought no improvement, that's this, they cried out for help. He says this, prayer made the difference. This is this new word that is used here, rescue from slavery came up to God. That where political change didn't help and where relief didn't come, prayer made the difference. Church, I know you know this. We're in a season of prayer and fasting. And remember the first message we talked about how prayer precedes the mission of God? Look at what it says in the next verses. As they've prayed now, it says this, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham. This remember is not that God had forgotten they use the term, remember, it's a covenant term. What it means is help is on the way. The next step of the story, the next chapter of the story is about to be written. So that's remembrance. It's not that God lost his memory and all of a sudden remembered he had a covenant. No, this is something's about to happen. And it says this, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I love that he ends chapter two with the fact that God new because the idea is that help is on the way one of the verses in that song that toby mack wrote it goes like this well i've seen my share of troubles but the lord ain't failed me yet so i'm holding on to the promise y'all that he's rolling up his sleeves again help is on the way for the children of israel father thank you for your word. And I thank you how we see your providence in chapters one and two. That these weren't just random things that sort of worked out together, but it was you purposefully working and governing everything to happen according to your will. That you had a plan and a purpose in it all even in the bad things, even in the difficult things. And the beauty of that that I love, Lord, is that it is pointing us to a day when you would send your son Jesus to this earth and he would live the life that you and I, that we as, as, your, as your people could never live, but that he would die the death that we deserved to die. And it would all be about your providence, something that the world thought this is evil, this is murder, this is what needs to happen, that you would take that death and you would turn it to life. That Jesus would rise from the de dead three days later 
And because of that, we can have hope. And so I pray, Lord, that as we would see your providence, even in our salvation, that for those in here who don't know you, that they would put their faith and trust in you. And as they look at their story someday, they can look back and see how you were purposefully working towards this moment. And for those of us who've had that moment in our lives, I pray that you would help us, Lord, to trust that you're working even in the difficult days, even in the 40 years in Midian where we're wondering and just not really sure what you're doing. May we trust that you're providentially working in our lives. Lord, as we take time now to remember your death and burial and resurrection through communion, I pray that you would prepare our hearts for that. I pray as we think on your providence, even in your son's death and burial and resurrection, that we would be drawn to you, that our hearts would be encouraged in you, and that we would walk out of here with a sense of somberness for what you've done for us, but also a sense of joy for what is to come for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to antiochbbc.org. That's antiochbbc.org. God's best to you.